You want to hear something really nutty? I heard of a couple guys that want to build something called an airplane. You know, you get people to go in it and they fly around like birds. It's ridiculous, right? Or what about, what about uh, breaking the sound barrier? Or, or uh, rockets to the moon? Or atomic energy? Or a mission to Mars? Science fiction, right? Look, all I'm asking is, is for you to just have the tiniest bit of vision. You know, to, to step back for one minute and look at the big picture. To take a chance on something that just might end up being the most profoundly impactful moment for humanity, for, for the history of history. Hi, welcome to To the 90s and Beyond, the film podcast that covers movies of the 1990s as well as other movies that were sequels to or influenced by or spinoffs from movies that came out from the 1990s. My name is Vince Leo. I've been doing film reviews since the 1990s, 1996 to be exact. I started posting my film reviews online. If you're curious, you can also find my written work at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net, although I mostly, I'm just doing podcasts now, but if you want to find my past work, you can definitely check that out there. I also do another podcast that's very similar to this one called Around the World in 80s Movies, and as you probably could guess, it is covering films of the 1980s as well as older films that kind of lead up to those movies of the 1980s. If you're interested, you can check out the link to that at quipster.net. Today, the film I'm going to be reviewing from the 1990s came out in 1997. It is Contact. Contact is a science fiction, tries to be science fact, it's basically a science drama. It is a PG rated film. It does have intense action, mild language, and a scene of sensuality. The runtime is two and a half hours. The main star is Jodie Foster with a sizable supporting role going to Matthew McConaughey, Tom Skerritt, William Fitchner, uh, James Woods, Angela Bassett, David Morris, John Hurt, Jenna Malone, Rob Lowe, Jake Busey, among many others in the cast. The director of Contact is Robert Zemeckis, and the screenplay is credited to James V. Hart and Michael Goldenberg. Now, Contact was a film that was over 20 years, really, in gestation. It took a long time to go from idea to the screen. In fact, it took a few detours here and there. If you really want to get to the basic origin of it, you could start back, presumably, in 1975, acclaimed filmmaker Francis Ford Coppola. He had just directed a lot of big films for, obviously, the theater, but here he started developing a project for television. It was for CTW Productions, CTW, a subsidiary of the Children's Television Workshop, the production house that really made stuff like Sesame Street and uh, the electric company for television. And Coppola was going to be writing, directing, and producing for CTW, a three to five hour television event that was supposed to air on NBC sometime during the 1976 to 1977 season. And the project was, at that time, it was entitled The First Contact. And the project was intended as kind of a modern update to War of the Worlds, at least that radio broadcast of War of the Worlds where people thought it was actually happening. And this was going to be with an eye toward even more realism in trying to portray humanity's first encounter with aliens. 
So rather than aliens coming down and invading Earth, it was basically the way that we might communicate with an extraterrestrial intelligence in real time. And due to his work for the SETI project, SETI standing for Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, noted Cornell University astronomy professor Carl Sagan, he was hired as a scientific advisor, the scientific advisor for the first contact. And Sagan began compiling his theoretical musings on the topic of communication with intelligent extraterrestrials. He felt this material, as he was compiling it, probably would make a good companion book for the TV special. So Coppola, he was amenable to Sagan putting it together into a book form, so long as the proceeds of that book would be split three ways between Sagan, CTW, and Coppola's company, Zotrope. Unfortunately, the production would never get made. Coppola, when it finally didn't come to realization, returned his focus to doing feature films. Sagan embarked on a TV effort of his own for PBS soon afterward, a 13-episode TV docuseries called Cosmos, from which he derived a lot of fame. Go forward a few years, 1979, a junior development executive for Polygram Casablanca named Linda Obst. She was searching for feature film ideas for the company. Obst happened to be best friends with Andrian. He was the creative director for NASA and co-writer of Cosmos. Obst became good friends after having met both Sagan and Drian at the same party, Nora Ephron's party, uh, back in around 1974. And she also was their editor. She was editing for New York Times Magazine, and Sagan and Drian would regularly publish work there. She found them very fascinating people to hang around all the time. Sagan and Drian were a romantic couple at the time. Sagan was married, but he was separated. They were out in Los Angeles filming Cosmos at the time, and Opes was hanging out at their house, and she asked them if they happened to have any story ideas that might make for a good movie. And Sagan thought for a moment, and he mentioned that he actually did have an idea that he had been trying to kind of cultivate for some time, the fictional hypothetical scenarios that he had done on the SETI project on how humanity would handle their first encounter with extraterrestrials. Opes took it to her boss, the head of Casablanca Filmworks, Peter Goober, and he was delighted. He thought this was actually a pretty good idea that could be made into a movie if they developed it right. He offered uh, Sagan a, a percentage deal as well as a co-producer credit if he would develop the story into something that they could make into a feature. Goober's excitement really was ecstatic to be working with Sagan. He started courting studios immediately and he even published a full-page ad that they were going to make the film with Universal Pictures, who seemed the most likely, the most interested at the time back in 1981, even though they hadn't quite signed the deal yet. Sagan and Druyan, uh, they worked together. They developed a, a fresh storyline based on Sagan's initial musings, and they enlisted help from others to try to shape it into what would be a movie-type form. So Opst, Linda Opst was very instrumental in helping them along the way. And they also listed the services of their regular collaborative partner, a jet propulsion engineer and science fiction writer named Gentry Lee, who helped form Carl Sagan Productions. And together they decided they were going to make, at the center of the story, a woman. Drian was 
influenced by the historical story of early astronomer and mathematician Hypatia of Alexandria, because she had just been recently reading about the account of Hypatia in uh, Edward Gibbon's book. Edward Gibbon's The Historian had a book called The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. The Alexandria Library was a subject for the 13th and final episode of Cosmos called Who Speaks for Earth, in which Carl Sagan reflects on who'd represent humanity to extraterrestrials, very much in tune with exactly the movie they were trying to make here. In their historical take of the story of Hypatia, she was murdered by a mob of fanatical Christians who burned the Alexandria Library down and destroyed the vast amount of knowledge within, setting back the, all of the accumulated scientific advancements in the reading material in that library for centuries. This was all apocryphal, though, because this library actually, if you study history, you know that the Alexandria Library had ceased to exist prior to Hypatia's birth, so not quite accurate there, unfortunately. But nevertheless, they still wanted to form a story where the female hero leads an adventure while the men stay at home, and her scientific advances, her achievements, would stir up a similar fanaticism against knowledge because scientific advancements were somehow threatening the religious beliefs of the time. Sagan primarily handled the science and technology aspects of the story, while Druin expanded on the more personal and emotional story arc. Sagan says that the good parts of their protagonist, a radio astronomer named Dr. Ellie Arroway, came from Druin, who kind of ironically says that she was actually basing the character on Sagan. Druin named Ellie Arroway after her personal heroes, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, from which they derive Ellie, Eleanor Arroway, and Voltaire, whose last name was Arroway, although spelled in the French way, A-R-O-U-E-T. Arroway, A-R-R-O-W-A-Y, she leads a group of scientists at this listening station. She's, they're all searching for signs of extraterrestrial life somewhere out there in space. They eventually do receive a cryptic repeating message emanating from the Vega system, but so cryptic that it takes an international team of scientists years to decode that the Vegans want humans to build an ark to travel to them, which eventually five scientists do. With help from this outlaw named Saul Haddon, they build something called the machine to go out there and greet the aliens. But with the definitive proof of alien life, fanaticism begins to erupt globally, some of it threatening to turn quite deadly. That's kind of the basic premise of the original treatment that they had come up with. Think tanks, it, to try to get the story together, they were organized with a lot of leading scientists that Sagan happened to know. They also pulled in religious leaders, as well as specifically female scientists, to try to discuss how their story concept would be viewed among various circles. When Sagan used a black hole as a means to get from scientists from Earth to Vega very quickly, Caltech's Kip Thorne, he was a, a scientist there. He happened to be romantically attached to Opst, at least for a spell. He disagreed with the use of black holes. Black holes, he felt, were known that they would destroy anything that would enter them. So it didn't make scientific sense based on known facts. He recommended that they use a wormhole instead because a wormhole was a purely, at that time, theoretical concept. So it was ambiguous enough because we really don't know because it's all theoretical what would happen if anybody entered a wormhole, that that should be the means by which somebody could get from Earth to Vega 
very quickly. At the end of it, the 113-page story treatment, they dubbed it Contact, it was completed by November of 1980. Now, after their deal with Universal did fall through, Gubert eventually left Polygram in 1982. He took the project with him when he joined Warner Brothers. Gubert essentially cut Sagan and Druyan out of the creative process at that point because he felt that they just made a lot of demands and he wanted to cut loose from a lot of the scientific stuff that they demanded stay in the story. He wanted more relatability, something that you know your average moviegoer would understand. He didn't want all of this nerdiness that they brought into it. So he started developing pretty much unsuccessfully contact with a variety of different packages, different directors, different writers, none of whom really did fit the material, including rom-com specialist Robert Harling and 9 to 5 screenwriter Patricia Resnick, among several others. Gruber's attempts here at relatability, he introduced a lot of new characters, new story elements. There was a, a Native American park ranger who would become an astronaut. There was another uh, element he brought into it where Ellie would have an estranged son as a means to kind of explain why this woman was so neurotically passionate about alien signals. Somehow people couldn't grasp why a woman would be interested in that and they needed some sort of psychological reason, I guess. Ellie's search for communication in space, supplanting her inability to communicate with her own child. And the mission would eventually include Ellie, uh, the Native American, there would be a, a black astronaut, and a stowaway would also be revealed. It would be Ellie's son. Now, Goober didn't like Sagan's original ending, where scientists discover that there's a secret code hidden somewhere very, very, very late in the, in the value of, of pi, proving here, theoretically, that the universe must have been created by a supreme intelligence. Goober felt that this was way too highbrow for mainstream audiences. Warner execs encouraged that they go with something more spectacular, something akin to the endings of 2001 A Space Odyssey or Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Goober's screenwriters, they started applying several possible Big Bang kind of endings, including one where Earth itself enters into the wormhole and then emerges completely in the center of the galaxy. They did eventually settle on one particular one where the extraterrestrials would surround Earth and they would produce a massive global light show that proves their existence to everybody on Earth simultaneously. Now, as the project was still being developed as a movie, Sagan still felt that he should proceed with his story in novel form. This would be his first foray into fiction, and he felt that this would help him reach audiences that were wholly unfamiliar with his work. Sagan, he did have a, a contract with Random House at the time, but he asserted that it only covered nonfiction books, even though they, they felt that it covered any books. But he still decided that this was a good time to parlay his newfound fame from doing Cosmos, and he started shopping this first fictional story idea around. Eventually, a bidding war erupted, and Simon & Schuster bested all of the other bidders. I think there were nine companies in all. They offered Sagan a $2 million advance, paid over 10 years, to come up with this in a novel form. Meanwhile, Sagan did finally divorce his wife, Linda, who he had been separated from for three years, and he officially married Druyan at this time. 
Now, Sagan's novel would eventually get published in 1985. Guber did read it, but he found that the book seemed to be encumbered by all of that scientific jargon and all of those intellectual ideas he was trying to avoid. He preferred the cinematic feel of his current direction. Guber hired Gentry Lee uh, from S Carl Sagan Productions, who helped develop the original story idea. He came in to co-produce as well as work with his screenwriters to keep them somewhat on track. Further deviations from the original story did emerge because Warner executives felt that Ellie was coming across like a nerd and she would therefore not be relatable to younger audiences who would feel that watching all of these scientists doing their work was really boring to watch on a, on a film forum. They wanted, if they were going to show lab facility scenes at all, every one of them should have these exciting eureka moments so that people would stay interested. Steven Spielberg was obviously one of the first ones that they asked to direct the first one. He did give it some consideration. He thought, well, maybe this could represent the third of his Alien trilogy after doing Close Encounters and E.T. Maybe this would fit in, but ultimately he did decline because he wanted to do other things. Eventually, there were a number of other directors that they saw, but it, none of them really panned out, including Richard Donner, among others. Before Warner finally secured someone who was interested, Roland Joffe, the director of The Killing Fields, as well as The Mission, except he eventually did start to move on to other things when it seemed like it was going to be a while before it was ready to be made. Warner, though, after all of these many years in development, started to grow tired of seeing Goober doing nothing with contact, so they finally took it off of his hands when he left Warner to run Sony Pictures. Warner's incoming executive, Lucy Fisher, she refused Goober's offer to repurchase the story rights and instead handed over the project to their newly made Warner executive named Linda Obst. Yes, Linda Obst. Uh, they didn't realize at the time that she was the one who originally developed it as a film. Kind of a serendipitous circumstance. Obst immediately fired the current scientific advisor and all of the creative team, and she brought Sagan and Drian back on board, and contact was then fast-tracked at Warner. Sagan protested all of the deviations that they had made from his story's intent in all of their recent screenplays, a lot of these new elements were removed from future scripts, but Opes did emphasize to Sagan that compromises happened to be needed because this was going to be an expensive film. They needed to pull in a broader audience, uh, some, some big appeal that would help them recoup some of their money on their investment in the production. Now, for the screenplay, Opes wanted her good friend, screenwriter James V. Hart, Hart read the original novel, at least tried to, but he refused. He said it was unadaptable, it was overly complex, and he didn't think it fit the mold of any known successful alien picture. So they continued to offer him escalating monetary offers. Eventually, he did consent to read the prior screenplays because he was interested in seeing how the other screenwriters who were hired by Goober how they had tried to manage their adaptations and see if maybe they can give him an idea of how to tackle this very complex material. The only thing that the screenplays had in common, at least to heart, was that the main character would go into a spaceship and then meet with aliens who had contacted Earth. During this time, Hart happened to be flabbergasted that Sagan himself had absolutely no input in any of these attempts to adapt his story beyond doing that initial story treatment. So he decided, well, 
I will work with you and see if this can be made if you allow me to get in contact with Sagan. So Obst coordinated a weekend. Obst, Sagan, Drian, and Hart spent an entire three-day weekend going over story ideas. And eventually, Hart did emerge with a cinematic through line that he felt could work. Contact would be a father-daughter story. And that's something that they all agreed would be a, a compelling way to develop this into a feature film that people could relate to. Hart, Sagan, and Druin over the next year developed that storyline and that through line into what would become the basics of Contact as we know it. Now, during this time, Warner was also pursuing directors, including Robert Zemeckis. Zemeckis at that time was not keen on doing a film about aliens, but he was a big fan of Carl Sagan, so he decided he would read the script, which he enjoyed, at least up until the ending, where Ellie gives a speech telling people how they would believe her if they could see what she saw, and then these aliens view this speech and help prove her right by opening up the heavens, so to speak, and, and dazzling Earth with a light show. Zemeckis felt that audiences were just never going to buy this corny ending, and so he declined because he was, at that time, very interested in doing this biopic about Harry Houdini instead. After that, Obst was very keen among the other directors they were looking at to get George Miller. Miller was the director of Mad Max and a variety of other things and, and had just finished production on Babe. He proved to be very elusive in terms of trying to coordinate talks with. He is in Australia, and uh, he just had a hard time. He was basically off the grid a lot of the time. So Obst flew Sagan and Druin all the way out to Australia to meet with Miller in person to try to convince him of Contact's worthiness, which he eventually did find. Warner officially announced Contact was in pre-production with George Miller at the helm, as a 70 plus million dollar film with a release date of Christmas of 1996. Now, Miller had his own ideas about who should star. Uma Thurman was his main choice for to play Ellie Arroway. He wanted Ray Fiennes to be kind of a, a co-star, but they were not quite interested. Robert Redford was given a look to play Palmer Joss, who was kind of like the older man father figure that she would engage in a romantic relationship with. He passed as well. Miller next pursued Jodie Foster to play Ellie Arroway. Foster was very skeptical about this. She preferred doing real dramas. She didn't really like science fiction. But there was something about the story that she found intriguing because underneath the science fiction premise, there was really a base of intellectual and emotional elements. She left the door open. She agreed to visit Carl Sagan at his Seattle home to discuss things further, find out a little bit more about what their intent was. And that's where they really connected very strongly. They waxed philosophical about all kinds of topics over the time she spent there of love, of life, of humanity, of all of their career choices. And in that time, Foster found Sagan to be very passionate about science in a way that she felt she could bring that passion to Ellie if the screenplay could be further developed in that regard. After their meeting, Sagan and Druin looked at each other and said, Ellie lives. Given Foster's emphasis on trying to develop her character a lot more emotionally, Warner decided that Hart's plot was good, but his story itself was very heavy on science and math, and it didn't have a good defined character arc for Ellie. So Ellie seemed to remain aloof, and her motivations were enigmatic. 
Warner also wanted Ellie, they felt, to be something more relatable to audience. Maybe she should be trying to have a baby throughout the course of the story and then maybe get pregnant by the end of the film. They felt audiences would never really relate to a woman somehow dedicating her life to her career instead of trying to start a family. Miller felt Warner's suggestions were more evocative, though, of a typical Disney film. He felt that Contact should not be just another formula Hollywood story. He should go into a direction that it should naturally go. Miller started coordinating with this other screenwriter named Menomaeus. Mayas and Miller met at a barbecue uh, just not too long before, and Miller felt that Mayas' subversive tendencies could make contact even edgier. So Mayas, with the help of Miller's frequent writing collaborator named Mark Lamprell, they started strengthening a lot of the uh, story elements to create more conflict. The media would be much more involved in their story. They would expand the, the terrorist elements that Hart had alluded to in his screenplay, And they also fleshed out, because Warner wanted it, Ellie's romance with this spiritual advisor and religious power player named Palmer Joss, which they decided to combine three different characters into one to condense all of these science versus religious themes. Now, Foster started, at this point, growing somewhat wary of the the current direction of the story because the script had started expanding. It was now, and it went from like 120 pages to over 200 pages. And it was beginning to take a lot of strange turns that she compared to like a combination of elements of Lorenzo's oil and David Lynch's eraser head, just hard to grasp. Opes, sensing that things were turning sour, replaced Mayus with Michael Goldenberg. Goldenberg happened to have worked on an early draft of Contact, one of those ones under Goober that Warner seemed to like the most. Goldenberg was known for building characters, surmised that Ellie should be looking to the stars because she was avoiding looking within herself. That was her motivation. And Goldenberg regularly consulted with Sagan himself on approval for all of his new ideas he wanted to bring into the story. He wanted if nothing else, to strive to emulate the same sense of awe and of wonder for the universe that Sagan held. Sagan was also instrumental in the story development because he knew all of the politics that were involved in science and keeping that feeling very realistic. Now, once Goldenberg's treatment was completed in 1994, Obst and Warner finally felt they had an absolutely winning script. But it wasn't a unanimous decision. George Miller felt it still wasn't ready, and he ordered another revision, one which Foster did finally approve after this draft. She was ready to go. She accepted the lead role for a reported $7 million, and she was fully committed at this point. She identified with the Ellie of this script as a consummate outsider whose success represented female empowerment, but her journey is not necessarily female. It is a human journey, and it would be about finding the meaning of life rather than the typical Hollywood trope of a female journey to find love. Foster immediately took to trying to understand astronomy. She pulled together a lot of big astronomy books, very heady astronomy books, to try to to give her uh, portrayal conviction. She wanted to see the importance of astronomy because she had difficulty fabricating emotions for something that she herself did not actually care about. Now, although Foster is a very educated and very intelligent person... She was a Yale graduate, magna cum laude. Her degree was in literature, yet she felt completely illiterate when it came to science. 
So it was overwhelmingly frustrating to try to read these tomes, these hard science tomes. So in order to get some understanding as far as black holes and all of these wormhole concepts, she decided to try to read children's books to explain astronomy to her. Foster also decided to meet with other people in the in the industry of astronomy, specifically one that would become the inspiration for her and her character, a woman named Jill Tarter, who is a UC Berkeley radio astronomer who led Project Phoenix for the SETI Institute, and she became a consultant on the film and, and somebody that Foster patterned her character on, as well as patterning after Sagan, of course. Despite Foster being fully on board with this version of the script, Miller still started pressing for additional changes. He started adding more characters, one based on Kent Cullors, who is a, a, a blind radio astronomer who was serving as an advisor to the film. He wanted to get his character in there. He also injected the Pope as a major player to fully drive those re religious themes. Warner felt that putting the Pope as a, as a main player into their story was completely misguided, and they started very much souring on Miller's vision of where he was going, especially because the budget was escalating even further, and the established release date of Christmas of 1996 began to grow increasingly unlikely. Foster, sensing all of this was coming to an impasse, she started grumbling that she might drop out because she wanted to honor other upcoming commitments, and Warner said Miller had to get this ready. He had to first reduce the budget somehow. Miller said he could only reduce the budget if he had another script rewrite, another overhaul. And having enough, Warner decided they just were better off releasing Miller because they had no confidence that he was actually going to deliver this film, not only by their Christmas 1996 release date, but any release date that they set. He was never going to be satisfied, they felt. They immediately sought out Robert Zemeckis. Zemeckis was just coming off of Forrest Gump. The Houdini project went to Paul Verhoeven. Knowing that Foster was contemplating leaving because she had been through one too many projects where she invested her time and her energy and her passion into that never got made, in order to keep things from total collapse, Warner offered Zemeckis all assurances that he could change whatever he wanted, including that light show ending, they were amenable to doing whatever he wanted. They wanted to get this film made. And with nothing to lose, they granted him basically something he couldn't refuse, which was something akin to Final Cut, even though he did make some compromises to try to, to placate them somewhat. Obst, she happened to be heartbroken at George Miller's firing. She retreated basically from the project, even though she still retained her producer credit. Meanwhile, Sagan did still stay in the mix. He approved of Robert Zemeckis because he felt that he handled time travel well in the fictional Back to the Future series. Foster initially feared Zemeckis being brought on, though, because she felt he would probably change the story, make it more about technology than about characters. It would start shifting. But she found, after meeting him, keeping an open mind, that he actually was much more of a people person than she expected. And he really did emphasize a refreshingly very simple and inclusionary approach for his cast of actors, as well as his crew. Everybody could have input as far as what they felt the story should be, and he would he would listen, and some of it he would incorporate, if it made sense. Zemeckis did feel that the story really should not really be about the aliens or finding the aliens. It should be about how their discovery has us reflect, us as humans, reflect on our, ourselves. 
So he had Goldenberg continue to revise. He added this ambiguous ending that left Ellie's space journey to the imagination as to whether it might actually have happened. He felt that any other definitive uh, explanation would ring false. So Zemeckis also felt that Contact's strongest theme would be the need for tolerance of the beliefs of others. For most of our existence, of human existence, we answered life's mysteries with God. God was responsible for anything we didn't understand. As we began to study science, we began to answer those questions with scientific reason, especially as it relates to the universe. As we find out more, we have more scientific rationale. So as we replace those answers, where does God go? And some people on Earth are just not ready for God to be replaced as the answer for all things. They would prefer to keep the mystery of the universe so that they could continue to uphold those long-held norms about God being the center of everything. The foundations of these beliefs mold all of our ideals. Disrespecting those ideals will lead others to feel that they need to take to violent extremism to keep people from knowing more. It becomes an anti-intellectual premise so that they could uphold those lives and lifestyles and those life beliefs that they've always held. But everybody is really prone to becoming a zealot. Even a scientist can be a zealot. But ultimately, the message Zemeckis felt should be that zealots, even zealots, should respect the zeal of others, even if they vehemently disagree with what they're zealots about. In the finished script that we see on the screen, the scientist Ellie Arroway, she spends this lifetime searching for intelligent life forms outside of our solar system. Ellie's faith in God wavered when she tried futilely to contact her mother in heaven through her radio as a child. She replaced her faith with this belief that science is actually what provides the only proof. And as an adult, she and her team at SETI wait for a message from the skies, which does arrive after they receive a repeating signal emanating from Vega, a star system 26 light years away. And they begin to work diligently to try to decode the message as Earth erupts into a heated science versus religion debate on what all of this signifies. Very simplistic take. It's a very complicated film. I could go a lot further. Zemeckis says that he got all of his first choices when it came to casting. Obviously, Foster was already cast when he started, but for Palmer Joss, he pursued Matthew McConaughey, even though he was half the age of what they envisioned Palmer Joss should be. Warner executives were striving for younger, somebody younger, and they recommended McConaughey because he had a standout performance in A Time to Kill. Warner Brothers had two more options in their first look deal with McConaughey, and after determining that McConaughey had the right chemistry with Foster during a screen test, Warner did force him out of his next slated project called The Jackal to make contact. McConaughey received $2 million for the role and assurances that he was going to be allowed to make character adjustments so that Palmer could be more of a renegade rather than a saint as he appeared to be in the story, as it was at the time. Zemeckis was very inclusionary of McConaughey's many character ideas. The only one that he really turned down absolutely was McConaughey wanted to sport a very thick lumberjack beard, which Zemeckis thought just wasn't going to work for that character. Now, in Sagan's original book of, of Contact, that happened to be set in a future America where a female president was in charge. Miller, when he was making his film, he had slotted Linda Hunt for that role, but Zemeckis thought that 
maybe a real life female politician was going to be much more believable, somebody with those skills going in. So he called in many current and former female politicians to audition, but none of them seemed to really work the way that Zemeckis wanted. In fact, Zemeckis started thinking about going a different direction to make it more notable. He decided maybe a black president would be just as groundbreaking as having a female president. So he offered Sidney Poitier the role. Now, Poitier, coincidentally, turned down contact to appear in The Jackal, which McConaughey was going to appear in. So he was unavailable in the end. But then a serendipitous circumstances emerged. The current president of the United States, Bill Clinton, delivered a speech, a real-life speech, about the possibility of discovering life on Mars that inadvertently seemed to echo many aspects of the film. He spoke so generically, they could apply what he was saying about that to what they were doing in the film. But definitively setting the film in the present day would be required because Bill Clinton was the current president. But they still thought it was worth it. They could edit the footage that Bill Clinton delivered for contact. They could use some movie magic to try to include Clinton at various points throughout the film. The Clinton speech that he gave could be moved from where he delivered it from the White House Rose Garden to the White House press room. After finding out that they were going to be doing this, White House counsel did offer a letter of disapproval. However, they sought no punitive remedies, even though it seemed very controversial to be using Bill Clinton's likeness and image and words in a completely fictional film that didn't have their approval. Further controversy did emerge Real-life CNN media personalities did populate the roles in the media. This was a Warner Brothers film. Time Warner happened to own CNN as well. So they felt they, they could use that. But the CNN, after this developed, felt that people were not going to respect them as a news organization if they were involved in doing fictional stories. So that caused kind of a change in the way that they did things in the future. Smooth sailing did not always get achieved specifically because Sagan's health began declining during this period. He had a, a number of ailments due to, uh, due to bone marrow disease uh, that he was finally succumbing to. He had transplants and other things that were keeping him alive, but Sagan's health was beginning to definitively fail. He still found the time to visit the production in Los Angeles as well as in Washington, D.C. He still pushed Zemeckis to try to strive for scientific authenticity over artistic license, something that Zemeckis didn't always achieve. Sagan repeatedly promised to his wife, Durian, that she would not have to go to the movie premiere alone. He was going to be alive to see it, but unfortunately, it was not to be. 62-year-old Carl Sagan did succumb, finally, to his ailments. He died of pneumonia on December 20th, 1996, just a few months before the release of the movie, after his two-year battle with that bone marrow disease that, that finally he could not stave off any longer. Druyan was mourning, obviously, for some time, but only for a few days did somebody allow her to mourn. Francis Ford Coppola re-enters the scene. He formally filed a lawsuit that he had been threatening since November of 1995 when he sent Sagan a letter demanding a profit share of contact as a movie. Sagan clapped back. He called Coppola's claim at this point without merit. He pointed out that Coppola basically in the 1970s had abandoned any effort to develop the first contact that they had worked on together after its initial failure to materialize. Sagan added that the only similarity between 
his version of contact in Coppola's effort was that humans would have contact with aliens and there was no copyright on something so broad. And besides, contact was public knowledge for 15 years, including a best-selling book, yet Coppola at no point in that period of 15 years sought a share, not in the script development, not in Sagan's $2 million advance, not in any of its book sales or anything until 1995 when it was actually a go as a film. Coppola was seeking $250,000 in damages as well as an injunction against Warner Brothers to prevent the film from being distributed. Obviously, Druin, still in mourning, she was sickened and outraged by this lawsuit. She called it absolutely unconscionable that Coppola would wait for Sagan's death to bring this forth. Furthermore, she claimed the suit defamed Sagan's memory as well as it defied his spirit of collaboration. Coppola here was claiming ownership of this idea that Sagan had been writing about theoretically since he was 15 years old. So for him to say that any movie that Sagan developed in which humans contact aliens was his own was absurd. Warner, though, told Dream that they surmised that there was more at play. Coppola was pushing because he was retaliating against the studio because the Warner prevented Coppola from moving Pinocchio to Sony due to their creative differences. That was his motivation for kind of sticking his thumb in the eye of Warner, not necessarily going against Sagan. In February of 1998, this lawsuit ended up getting dismissed out of court. Coppola really could not produce a legally enforceable contract he had between himself and Sagan at the time they were developing the first contact for television. And even if he could, he had waited beyond the statute of limitations before he finally brought his lawsuit. Coppola did appeal, and he did lose on appeal the following year as well. So with everything still a go, Zemeckis did complete his film. Test screenings, though, produced unenthusiastic audience responses. They did not like the ambiguous ending, and they also felt that the closure of Ellie's story arc was unsatisfying. Goldenberg decided that they were going to add a last-minute capper that would suggest Ellie's experience likely was not just her imagination. It was a tip of the hat to audience members without officially saying that it was more likely than not that Ellie did experience this journey. Zemeckis also decided to film an epilogue of his own where Ellie, at the end, is teaching the next generation about what's out there. That replaced his original ending that he had made kind of to please Warner, where she's talking on a cell phone to Palmer Joss, and that implies that she is pursuing a romantic relationship. He was never quite satisfied with that ending anyway. The story really should be about Ellie finding value in continuing to look out there somewhere for meaning. Now, due to this mixed early reaction in those test screenings and not wanting to overextend itself in competition with a lot of bigger and flashier films, during the summer of 1997, its new release date, Warner Brothers decided to only release Contact into half the theaters that normally a big studio release would garner of 1,500 theaters. But it did finally catch on. Momentum did strike. Contact did earn its money back. It made about $170 million worldwide off of, in its end, a $90 million budget. So a modest success in the end. As far as Contact as a film, it is kind of a rarity in terms of high-budget science fiction because it's assuming that we in the audience do want intelligent and emotional fare instead of 
just a lot of ironic dialogue and nonstop special effects, which typically populated science fiction during the mid-1990s, especially ones involving aliens. And it also plays out very plausibly in terms of its political viewpoints and this science versus religion debate shaping public opinion. And that same debate does rage in the work of many astronomers like Sagan who are challenged to try to resolve whether the, the majesty and the design of our universe are the results of just completely random scientific events, or if all of this is a sign that there is indeed a supremely intelligent architect responsible for it all. Now, there is a broadly entertaining aspect to contact that speaks to general audiences which will probably ruffle some feathers among people who think that it should be untethered to having to be a crowd pleaser, which it most certainly is, I do think that there's still enough intelligence in contact to qualify as a thinking person's populist science fiction film. Know that it's a populist film, but know that it is actually more intelligent than most populist fare, especially of its era. I do think it effectively captures the mystery, the wonder, the awe that would definitely occur in the event of contact with an alien civilization. And it does retain a grounded sensibility that's unique among films that cover this subject. And that's not to say that the visual effects are not impressive. I didn't go into, a, to a large extent, the visual components of the film, which are immense and, and part of the appeal of contact. It will sate eye candy lovers in its way, but those are not really the main selling point as to why I would recommend Contact to most people. Unlike other science fiction releases of the modern era where you would just say, hey, it's a great effects film, go see it. This definitely, you would say, go see it for reasons that are completely beyond the special effects. You got a very strong performance from Jodie Foster. The intellectual and philosophical appeal, I do think, makes Contact arguably the best film on the subject, at least since Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and it kind of predated a lot of more intellectual, headier science fiction, ponderous science fiction that we currently have in a lot of films today. So for all of that, I will give Contact three and a half stars out of four. Three and a half stars on my scale means that I do think that Contact is a good film. Definitely worth recommending to most people who find this subject matter interesting. I do not think that you need to be a science fiction fan to thoroughly enjoy Contact because it is a human drama at the core. It definitely transcends its science fiction premise to become about something more about humanity and about ourselves and what we are and should be striving for as a people and what we value, especially in terms of tolerance for each other's points of view, something that definitely we probably should strive for today in this era where people speak a lot but don't spend a lot of time listening to others. Three and a half stars out of four is what I give contact. Now, contact has grown over the years. There are a lot of people that think Contact is one of the best films of the 1990s. There are others who still have not really quite come around. So it's it's a slightly divisive film, but I think mildly so. I don't think that the people who deride Contact are very strong in their passion against Contact. It just for some reason doesn't grip them in the same way that it does for many others who have found it to be extremely motivating, especially, especially women who decided to pursue a career in science because of Ellie Arroway's storyline here. 
There was a stage musical adaptation that was created and it debuted in Seattle in 2009. Andrean did approve of the production. I don't think it really caught fire, but some intent there to continue contact in terms of uh, other mediums beyond book and movie. George Miller, he did end up suing Warner Brothers, although unsuccessfully, for a breach of contract when he was fired. Miller has gone on in recent years to say that his version of Contact would have been very similar to another Matthew McConaughey vehicle that Linda Obst developed over the years, Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. He said that his version would have been very similar, not necessarily story-wise, but very similar in its approach to kind of uh, unlocking mysteries and kind of transcending the mundane. So even if you're upset that George Miller didn't get to make his version of Contact, that edgier version, at least you have the Christopher Nolan Interstellar to kind of compare it to, to a certain extent. If you have your own thoughts on Contact that you want to impart, how much this film means to you, or maybe you feel it, it's flawed in a variety of ways and you want to talk to me about it, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. I have links there to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram. You can contact me any way you feel most comfortable. I do think that if you want me to respond and elaborate any deeper than a few words that you should probably just email me. My email address is at my website, quipster.net. And let me know what you think of the show overall, if you are so inclined or any suggestions that you think could improve it. As far as what I'm going to be doing on the next episode, we're going to continue on with a film that came out in the same year as Contact. And it also features a wormhole, travel through a wormhole as part of its main plot. But it goes in an entirely different direction <laughs> in terms of what it has to say, because it's very much kind of a science fiction horror movie. It is Event Horizon, a film by Paul W.S. Anderson, starring Lawrence Fishburne and Sam Neill. And I have a lot to say about that film, so hopefully you'll check that episode out. Event Horizon on the next episode. Until then, thank you everyone for listening as we continue our travels to the 90s and beyond. Thank you.